Charles alluded to that that first hour set the stage. Just know that uh, this passage that we're in this morning was uh, determined a while ago, so it was no coordinated effort on our part, but on the Lord's part. John Calvin in 1536, his statement, he said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And worship has been observed throughout every known culture, throughout all of the world, throughout all of time. When a culture or a tribe, a group was discovered, there was one thing that they all have in common. They were all worshipers without fail. And we could say confidently that worship is the most central conduct of man. He always has something that he values, always has something that he places his worth in. And what we think, what we value, what we place our worth in is our worship. Whether it is the roles that we are assigned, the activities we engage in, the words we speak, all of these are a matter of worship. We're familiar with 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I was was hoping that you were all uh, familiar with that passage. That's test number one. You'll have more. Everything we do is a matter of worship. It's so central that whenever God gave his commands to Moses, what was the first one? Thou shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Exodus 20, verse 3. And yet, whenever we hear the word idolatry, what we think of is the second one that he gave when God said to Moses, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or in the sea When we think idolatry, we think, well, as long as we don't have those cast images, those statues, which we don't have any around here, so command accomplished, we can move on. No, because of who man is as a created being, a worshiper, these two commands are intertwined, are confused, are two sides of the same coin, if you would. That if we have another God, uh, another God, lowercase g, before God himself, uppercase g, then it does, does it have to have an image? Or is it simply that we have another God before God Almighty? In our passage this morning, we hear this two-part uh, encouragement from the Apostle Paul. He says of the Thessalonians, that they turned to God from idols. So there's two parts there. And what we want to look at is the idolatry, the invisible idolatry, putting something else or another God that is above God because they don't always come with images. I've been in some people's homes. I did not see any statues did not see a mantle with little figurines with which they bowed down to worship. But are we free of the command to have no other God before God? And I'm not pointing out the fallenness of our culture. I mean, they do that. If you want to see the fallenness of our culture, they will put it right in your living room on your television. They will email it to you. You, you do not have to try to escape it. They will send it to you. 
So we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and to give a little bit of a background to catch us up to speed since it's been a few weeks, this letter comes from the Apostle Paul, who was in Thessalonica on a vision from the Lord in which he was there and was able to teach and preach in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. There may have been a short time more than that with which he was able to do industry. He was able to work. He was able to teach the Thessalonians. But then after only three Sabbaths, he, there was an uproar caused, and so they sent him out at nighttime. It was what Paul had, what he was saying that stirred the people up. And we want to know why. We, we want to investigate this. But Paul, after he left, a church that he had just started, he had just seen magnificent things happen. He's now removed for his own safety. And he sends Timothy back. Timothy goes back and gets a report. He asks the questions, you know, what's going on? What was left undone? And Timothy takes all that information. He brings it back to Paul. And Paul is encouraged. He's overjoyed. And then he writes this letter back to them. So the letter that we have, the one that you have here in your hands, is an ancient letter to a brand new local church. And Paul's encouraged by them. He's encouraged, he, we hear in verse 3, of their faith, their hope, their love. He says, we saw this was evident. There was a change in you. And whenever we saw some of the details of the city of Thessalonica, we're going to get a lot more vivid in our, our picture of what they were going through. But he says that the trials you were going through, the difficulties you were going through, the persecution that was happening convinced me that it wasn't my pleasure, my, my great preaching. I didn't come to you with some awesome plan but I came to you in the power and in the spirit of God. That's how I know that it wasn't me. It wasn't by the, the ideas of men that you turned, but it was by the Holy Spirit. So we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 8 this morning. So we pick up in the middle of what Paul is saying. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And at that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter that you've sent saints through this before, Lord. Gives us confidence, Lord, that you would take us down the same path. That as the gospel would come, Lord, that we would receive it. I pray that that would be true of everybody in this room. And Lord, that it'd be so evident that we would be overjoyed that our turning would be one of, of reputation change. The people who would, as they saw the Thessalonians and understood that an act and a work of God happened in them, that my life, Lord, 
that each one of our lives would change in a way that people would say, only God could have done this. And Lord, it's not simply that we change, but that we would repent, that we would change into holiness and into loving God. Lord, that's the work you want to do. So do that this morning, Lord, in all of our hearts. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen. So whenever it says it was sounded forth, this is is reputation changing. But as I said, I want to focus on this one statement here. The content of it was how they turned to God from idols. And that is going to be a bulk of what we talk about. And then close with verse 10 on which the the motive that kept them going. So I want to give you the local context of what the Thessalonians were living in. So we hear, turn to God from idols, and that's a pretty scant description, very general. We need more detail. It's like a coloring book where it's just the outline. We want to use the background, the history, the commentaries to color that in, that we would have a much more vivid picture. Not like the pictures that I received this week, which I could not tell what color they were because every crayon went in the same place. And they were all excited to say, Dad, look. And I just had to say, that's awesome, because I could not make out what it was. But we want to color this in and see what it means. What does it look like? A close scrutiny. Because we sin specifically, and so our repentance is very specific. If I just said repent of idols, you would be tempted to say, well, It says no carved images, and we don't have any, so mission accomplished. But we want to scrutinize. So I want to define the idolatry, or I define idolatry in general, and then specifically look at what the Thessalonians were turning from. So what is idolatry? Does anybody have a a working definition that they could give to somebody else? If I asked you quickly, could you explain it? What is an idol? Well, when we have a disordered love, whenever it, we love inordinately, something is out of order here in which we're willing to violate the greater commands, those from God and how we're to obey God, how we're to follow his law and how we're to treat people. We would violate the greater ones in order to please or satisfy the lesser. Things are out of order God says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. A disordered love spends more time loving and focusing on their pleasure, their bank account, their reputation, their leisure, their life, that little dopamine hit that comes from endless scrolling. You're aware of that, right? The addictive properties of scrolling. That's a no. Okay. Okay, that's a no. Even though it, there may be good pursuits, good biblical pursuits, whenever they're out of order, we have, whenever God says there would be no other God before me, whenever they're out of order, we're serving the lesser instead of the greater. So what might be a good thing 
So don't think that it would only be evil activities that we would serve. Good things, relationships, statuses, our reputations, service, good things, we have those exalted so high that they're out of order. And then we find ourselves angry and punishing others that we're not able to serve them. So a good definition that I've heard and I pass on is that an idol is anything you would sin to get, sin when you don't get, and sin whenever you have it. Okay, does that cover almost everything? Right, because a worshiping heart, we can make an idol out of everything because the issue is not the idol, that this thing is so powerful. The issue is where? The heart, the heart. So we sin when we're pursuing it, maybe sin whenever we're denied it. We're sinning, we're sinning whenever we're indulging it. It's a wide definition because we can idolize everything. You cannot say that, well, I'm doing this activity too much, so I'm going to cease to do that and take up another. I need to, I think I'm idolizing my, my hunting trips, so I need to shut those down. I'm going to start a stamp collection instead. What happens? You just become postmaster general. You go from one to the other because the heart was never addressed. In the Thessalonian culture, it was pluralistic. Okay, so we're not unfamiliar with this. It was pluralistic, meaning that it was not exclusive. You could worship any one of the gods. You could go to any one of the activities. They were all open to you. And in many cases, people would frequent more than one of them. But joining in the activity, honoring it, serving it, was functionally worshiping it. So as I go through some of these descriptions, you'll hear some of these key words and key desires that the idols would offer. So in Thessalonica, there was the Dionysus cult. He was a, a Greek god, and this goes all the way back. They found him in inscriptions all the way back in 187 B.C. that they would have little commemorative coins, and by holding those coins, you were identifying yourself with this cult, with this idol. And in the Apostle Paul's day, this was still in operation, the temple was still there, but it was not the most common one. It had already begun to broke down in Thessalonica. However, it was big in surrounding cities. Okay, so this, this God, he was one of a liberator. And this is how he was described, a God of wine, music, dance, and sexual activity. Okay? And I will just say that the descriptions of these are so bad that uh, we can't repeat them in public. But let's just say that these deviant sexual practices were used as a weapon and a defense to destroy and oppose any who would say to shut this down. Because in this cult, it was about the freedom to do whatever you wanted in a sensual manner. 
I believe we read this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, whenever Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. But anyone who would engage in these activities would just simply claim it was worship to this God. Well, this is, this is who I identify with, right? Well, this is who I am because I'm connected with this cult. The Egyptian cult, it, this had a more religious and structured feel to it. This was the one that would have instead of the little coins, they'd have statues that people would bow down to and worship. These idols, they had ears so they would hear. They had hands that they would do. They had feet that they would go. But again, almost all of these turned into some very deviant sexual activity. But those who had a more religious bent would also worship in the temple of these Egyptian gods. The Cabarrus cult was probably the most visible, maybe not the most common, but the most visible. This was on some of the coins that they had as well. This was a God who was a clean shaven man, well-dressed with a hammer to identify his productivity and a good old Stein. This was one who would promote and teach and encourage those who would work hard that they might live in excess with their productivity. Does that, do you think that God might still exist? Do you think he might have another, uh, maybe a grandson that we know him by? So the honorarium, the way that you honored this God was by, once you've worked hard, you honor him by living excessively. That was how you demonstrated that I am of this group. While all of these idols, if we were to line them up here on a table, we would know, okay, those are idols. We can see the cast images. We do not bow down before them. So have we accomplished having no other gods before the God Almighty? Because the most functional one, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to us, the most functional one and certainly the most influential in its functional worship in Thessalonica was the imperial cult. This was the worship of Rome as a personification of the Roman state and its emperor. So throughout the New Testament, you begin to hear this about honoring the emperor. In one commentary he says the worship of Roma was not merely an expression of religious devotion, but also one of political allegiance and economic dependence. It was a cult based on political rather than religious experience. So Rome was the ruling authority. They provided the military. They provided the coins. So Caesar was on the coins. They provided the social institutions the Colosseums, where you would go and see culture, the arts put on display, the gymnasiums where you would go and watch the activities, the roads, the industry, the infrastructure, all the way down to the money they carried. In Thessalonica, if you venerated or praised those gods, they would then love your city and do what? Yeah, the favor would pour back in. If the roads came into your city and went out, you could do a lot more industry. You could make a lot more, yeah, the, the good old bones. You could make a lot more 
money. But what heightened it was that if, if you remember a f- couple uh, verses ago that Thessalonica was a free city. So they did not have the heavy hand of Rome as the government locally, which actually heightens what the Thessalonians went through. They had this super commitment to Rome that the, it wasn't a, a local emperor. It was the people who would enforce compliance to Rome. Okay, so you may be thinking of more than one history lesson here. Rejection of this idol, refusing to honor Caesar, was a risk not just to yourself, but to the whole family, the whole city. The entire city, if this benevolent God of Rome was denied his worship, you risk everyone. You risk our financial benefit. You risk the military coming in here and putting down a heavy hand. You risk our freedom. We may be taxed greater. We may have. So as you see that, listen to the background here from Acts chapter 17. And and think of that as you're hearing this. Acts 17, verse 6 to 9. So this is Paul in the city of Thessalonica. And when they could not find them, that was Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, so not not the lawmen before the city authorities shouting, these men who've turned the whole world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. And they're acting against all the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they took money from Jason and let them go. They didn't use the law, they used the mob because it was a risk to everybody. It was the mob. It says they stirred up the rabble. They were the ones who enforced it, the citizens. Because you were risking the obedience to our cultural God. This is where we worship. If you were not compliant, then the deities of Rome were going to punish us all. Which, begin, which asks the question, begs the question, and begins to answer it. What was this idol? I mean, sure there were roads, sure there was money, but how did this go to worship? What is it about, not Rome, what is it about the heart that said, I can use this, I can use my worship of this idol to get what I want? What is it that the heart has? I hope that we would all ask that question for ourselves, Because that statement from Calvin, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. They couldn't, and we can't, just eliminate the objects or the outward appearance of our idol and so be free of our idolatry. We're not uh, mono-idolaters. We are polyidolaters. We have all sorts of them. And we exchange the glory of God for the image of man, of the, the lower, the lower. And so while we may be able to avoid making ourselves a carved image, 
having another God before God, not all idolatry has an image or a little idol, a little figurine, yeah, an object of it. Because we can think, well, idolatry is the carved images, but yet we then violate, have no other gods besides me. Not if you're following. Okay, I, I had a mm, which is an agreement. We can idolize ideologies, institutions, our status, achievements, our reputation, hobbies, and the list goes on. And dare we say, can we idolize God, idolize Christianity? Can we turn that into a vehicle of self-service? Martin Luther said, said this, The wicked say and confess, I am a monk. I serve God with vows and ceremonies. I do all of the right things. Because of this, he will give me eternal life. But who tells you thus that you're worshiping the true God and that he has commanded these things? No, you have made this up for yourself. Some God who wants these things, although there's no true God who requires this, or who wants to give you eternal life because of it. What then are you worshiping except an idol of your own heart whom you think the righteousness of your life will please him? We can invent. We can take the commands of God and so hold them on, so lift them up that our ability to follow through on them, which is a good, a good command. I mean, these commands are life, but I have found my identity, my safety, my freedom in this, that I've raised it up to a place that it shouldn't be. It's not the object, the status, it's not the carved image that's at fault. It is my heart. And as the title of this message, Raising an Idol Factory, to give this an analysis, it's not what is so special about this idol but it's what is it in my heart that makes me so susceptible to exchange one idol for another. I want to get rid of all of these. The word raising there, R-A-Z-I-N-G, is a demolition, an absolute destruction. Where there may have been a building, now there's just grass. It's not simply a condemning of an idol factory. This is obliterating it. That is what we are to do because we would turn and replace that with a true temple of God in our hearts. So this question, what is it that my heart longs for? I, I wanted to take this down to the bedrock, to what are these longings that I have? And, and I have three of them, and I don't know that my insight is original to mankind. So I'm not uh, saying I built all this, but this is from years of study, from counsel, from conviction, on what is it that the idol speaks to. So our first one here is our identity, our meaning. To define that, it's my understanding of to whom I belong, which will then define the roles I am to fulfill. So to who I belong and the roles to which I am to fulfill. If we were to start in the beginning, God said, to Adam, he said, he said in the heavens, then God said, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. And this gave Adam his identity. His relationship now was to the only other being. He is an image bearer. And then God follows that up. When verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So he has his identity in, the, in who he's connected to. I'm an image bearer of God and I have a role to play. This is how I am to live that out. So everything that Adam did was born out of his identity. Right from procreation to subduing the, the world. So building a home, he was naming the animals, working the ground. Everything that he did stemmed out of his identity because he knew image bear on earth to do what God has, you know, I am the one to do on earth what God has done cosmically. When God called Abraham, he said, you are the recipient of this promise. It's going to come through you. That was his identity, the father of many nations. When God wrestled with Jacob, he changed his name. Do we get our identity from our name? Yes. That blossomed out into the 12 tribes. Throughout the Old Testament, we always find Israel wanting to be of Israel and finding their lineage in that tribe because that was their identity. And whenever we get all the way up to the New Testament, there are those who, in confrontation with Jesus, say, our father is Abraham. We are of Abraham. This is our line. They could trace it all the way back to the beginning. This was their identity. Therefore, this is the role we're going to play. And in Christ, abide in me and I in you. Identity. Who I am. I am in Christ, as we'll look at here in how we functionally repent. But still today, our, our identity, who I am and therefore what I do. All of these status. I am a, to use myself, I am a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a father who is young, intelligent, accomplished. I can go on. I am a, and this is an early question between men. Oh, what do you do as a, okay, so my career is I am a, and then you fill in the blank. And the loss of that career, what does that do to a man? It's a tailspin, isn't it? Because he has so much of his identity wrapped up in that, that who I am and what I am to do, that grounds him, that roots him, that sends him going with confidence. Women, likewise, uh, the role of mother, you've talked with women who are unable that's a very significant because they know that's a role that they should and would love to play a mother a wife and so whenever that's rocked it's deeply consequential it's like cutting a boat free from its anchor during the storm what's going to happen there's, it's going to wander, but it has no idea where it's going to go. But what is it going to look for? Safety. It's going to look for an answer. Our hearts are not okay to just wander aimlessly. But yet, the destruction of our identity, think of what's being offered. Evolution. To destroy that you are created in the image of God. 
Okay, so I have no, I'm not created in the image of God. I just grew up out of the ooze. Okay, that needs to happen in order for me to say your, your identity is rooted in humanness or humanity. The humanism ideology stems from, no, 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 you're not from God. What about the destruction of the family? Whenever you grow up and there's nobody who you know is responsible for you or disciplines you or tells you these are the parameters with which you are to live in because you are, and there's that relationship, and that relationship then tells me how I am to act. Whenever that's disordered and parents are asking their kids what they should do, my goodness, there's no identity there. Or globalism. This is a new one. You have no home, no nationality, no base root. You are just citizen of the world. Number 56172008429. And we will refer to you as that. It's, it's the idea that if we can just cut that anchor loose, then you would be free. That you would be able to create the identity that you want. Float where you want. You're free. But in reality, we have no relationship with which we're based. We have no root. We are not in anything. And we're free to identify as we like. We, we sail lost. It's unbearable to not mean anything to anyone. Is that not a great ache in your soul? You can see how a young man or a young woman would go across broken glass to find somebody to mean something to. And this obviously is in the shadow of a culture that refuses to allow God or to refuses to submit to God as his image maker. I want to sever that. I want to be free from that and create myself in my own image. They sail away anchorless, rudderless. To be a worshiper in this clan, you hear things like, this is your community. This is your family. You are identified by your gender, your nationality, your race, even your deviant uh, proclivities. The, the term identity politics, right there, right in the name, identity politics. This characteristic so defines you that erasing it erases you. I've lost my identity and I can't handle that. So if you confront or attack my identity, you are attacking me at the root of who I am. And is this not helpful in the marketing? We just use identity politics to lead you wherever we want. Take from you whatever we want. We want your money and this is how much we want. <laughs> we want your labor. So work for the, oh, well, you know, this is your identity. This is who you are. But that's a hook. That's a bedrock, a desire. Why? And we hear this, an example. What is it about this identity? I, this, is, this is hypothetically, a hypothetical parent, okay? So not me, not me. A hypothetical parent, you hear things like, I must have obedient children. And the question is, why? 
the answer that flows from that, whenever you hear things like, well, because it reflects on me, whenever my children resemble wildlife, <laughs> that reflects that reflects on me. And what are people going to think about me? They're going to think, well, you're not a, well, you've failed here. And it's all about this guy. But I assume that this activity, so then I must. And the way that I will control you is not for your good. And it's not for the faithfulness to God. It is because you are criti criticizing, you're affecting my identity. And anything that threatens that, I will punish. I've said a lot here, so I can say a little less in these next two. A first bedrock of identity, a second one is of safety. I would define this as a confident or effective plan for an adequate defense against harm, hurt, or destruction. So I think I could explain that better in example. The weapons here is usually through emotion. Consider that Adam and Eve, whenever they ate from the forbidden tree, what did they do? Whenever they heard the, the voice of God, they... Okay, what, now, was that an effective plan? I mean, that's what we think of. Was that an effective plan to keep themselves safe from God? No, I, I mean, God's just like, well, there you are. I mean, I could see you right there. I'm, yeah, I have the all-seeing eye. I'm omnipotent. I know it. It's, it's not that they needed a better plan. It's that their mind went to, we need to hide. That is what they desired. That was where they, at the root, said, I will make a plan for this. When Abraham, Genesis 26, perceived that he would die, what did he do? He made a plan, which was to lie. And that plan, he believed, was effective enough to keep him alive. The language of the Psalms, whenever we hear them saying, I will not be moved, I will not be shaken, I will not fear. One of the great desires is that I will be safe. One of the most common commands throughout Scripture is to fear not. Do not fear, do not be afraid, be brave and do not fear. And there's a desire to enter into the rest whenever I know that the threat is overcome. And whenever we think we have an effective plan, it's not that there's not a threat out there. It's that I perceive that I am safe from it. And we see this still today. What am I trusting in to keep me safe from harm? And whenever things get harder, I have a plan for that too. Right? There's... What you hear, oh, this is the threat, this is the threat, this is your risk, and what you need to do to, to solve it. And there's whole, there's whole companies that uh, buy, um, what's the, the MREs, because they're coming for you. It's not, the problem isn't that you have those. It's that your trust, you're saying, I, this is my plan. It might be a good idea, but it has risen to the level that you now say, I must. And there's an emotion behind it. This will happen. This is my plan. We also have them, what am I relying on 
to reduce my risk of being harmed. I'll devote, devote myself to that. Sometimes it's just simply a relationship. I want to be with this person because they'll never leave me. Why? Well, because then what would I do? I'm, I'm vulnerable. I, I can't do, I can't live life on my, you know, all my whole, my whole kingdom here would fall. I can't afford this. I can't do this. I can't go here. I can't. And it's a focus saying my safety is the greatest. And we obviously hear this today, but like that boat with no anchor, this person is going to turn to the world's means. Think of what we heard read there in Psalm 33 from Ben. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Well, we have our military. We have our guns. Psalm 146, 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And the Psalms are full of cries for protection, for rescue, defense, vindication, for safety. And yet people fill their lives with trust in ideologies. Save the planet. Here's, you know, redefine God. If I can redefine him and he's no longer a wrathful God, then I am not at risk. The religious practice of works and the all too common trusting in the experts. That'll mitigate my risk. Obviously, there's another uh, cultural idol lurking in the darkness. He currently has a name after our entire society has been in an upheaval of, of those enslaved by the risk of their death and the destruction to the body. But the idols then that come in, somebody who is saying, I will never die, I will never grow old, I am my own determiner. And there's a ditch on both sides, so don't think this is political. There's, there's lunacy on both sides of the street. I, I don't actually have one uh, cultural ideology in this. I could give you probably 15 examples of every one of these on the spot. So while the assaults against our risk and our need for safety is mainly out of emotion, the others, our third one here is out of reason. So we have identity, we have safety, we also have our desire for freedom, the ability to act, to move, or to choose stemming from my own volition and my own knowledge. I will not be subject to what I was told. I will go find the knowledge I need in order to believe what I want. We hear this throughout Scripture, starting all the way back in Genesis 3. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. You will be free of God. You can throw him off, throw off his restraints. And does that at its root appeal to the heart? Yes. And we see this in man's thirst for knowledge, to understand, to make sense of his environment. He just does not want to be dominated. He does not want to be subdued. He does not want to be ruled over. He does not want to submit he does not want to exercise being an image bearer. He wants to be independent of that. And whenever that is threatened, you see this bedrock appeal being met either through turning to God in repentance or through the world's means. Some of the ways that you might be free. Well, addiction is a, a very common one. They speak of that like openly. 
that I might be free of the pain and anxiety, the weight of this, I can free myself through intoxication or whatever means this drug would give. Man wants to know that there's no authority over him. And as this world is filled now with suspicion that justice no longer flows, people are ready to fight. I will not be ruled over. I will be free. I will not submit. Or I could go on the positive. Some of those who are so far in financial debt because I will not be told no. And so they rack up tens, hundreds. I think they'd stop you before you got to millions of dollars of credit card debt. But I don't know. They don't offer me those cards. So it's a demand that I will know and I must know because I must be the one who chooses this. And so while there's some who are going to prepare and say, there's no government, there's no man who would rule over me, others will use the same thought process to say, there's no consequence for this. Eat, drink, and be merry. I don't want to know that there's a God over me who will punish me. He will not. I am free of this. And so while some idols represent safety to some, They'll scream across the aisle at the ones to whom it represents freedom. And they, I, I promise you, you they, they, we, will not understand the heart's appeal from somebody else. Where one says, you're selling your freedom for safety. As though that's a condemnation. How dare you? That other group says, oh, how dare you? You, you uh, exalt your freedom over keeping us all safe. We're all at risk because of your freedom. And the other one says, no, we're all at risk of tyranny because of your need for safety. And the third group says, uh, I was born this way. And you can sit there and say, how in the world can they not understand this? I have reasoned with them. I've laid out like 30 points. I have sent them like four attachments and blogs text them like 3,000 times and showed them a TikTok video. They do not get it. And they're sitting over there saying, this guy keeps on sending me all this stuff. And he, all of this stuff just confirms his ignorance, his, his, his futility. Or so I've heard. Or so I've heard. And out of these susceptibilities, all others grow. I just want to be happy. But... I need blank to occur in order for me to be happy. I just want to be in control. But this is how I'm defining it. So these bedrocks here in repentance, we have to understand the idol factory in order to take it down. What is this thing made out of? What, is, what appeals to me? Why is it that I am so susceptible to the same things over and over and over again? And if I were to give a few more examples, for a spouse whose demands are not reciprocated, have you placed yourself in a, ro- in a role within the family that only Christ is to occupy? I'm not being served. 
Well, that's because that worship is to go to God alone. For those who feel trapped in their life context, will more money or that new job, that new car, will that stop the strangling effect? For the one who says no one will listen, do you demand that you be heard? Because if not, then this whole ship is going to go down. You must listen to me. I have the plan. A great example. Watch somebody lose their cell phone. Some people freak out because they say, well, how am I going to get in contact with anybody? All my social media is on there. I need that thing. Right? Their identity. It's with those people. I, I am the, I'm the guy. On, and somebody else is like, well, but I, I, I can't watch my videos. I, 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 need, I need to be satiated. I need to, be, I mean, you, you can't take that away from me. And the other one says, well, all my information's on there. What, what, what am I going to do if somebody gets it? And you see all of these bedrock heart desires. And in counsel with people, whenever you're able to reflect that back on them, you can see these threads where they then are so susceptible to exchange one idol for another. But where we want to turn, what excited Paul about the Thessalonians was that they turned from idols. How did they turn from a culture with which they lived? Okay, consider this. In our day, how far do you live from your neighbors? Like physically live from your neighbors? Maybe 200 feet, 400 feet, maybe a mile, maybe 25 feet. The cities that they're living in, you would be living so close. Imagine living in the same apartment building and there's one common area with which is that we all go several times a day. So in their context, the idolatry was so pervasive, so rampant, that they were not allowed to just unfriend somebody and never see them again. They saw these people over and over and over. And in the culture with which the mob and the people enforced rule or enforced worship to the idols, you would see those people daily. They could reach out and touch you and harm you because you are now threatening the society. You weren't going to get away from it. We can get away from it. We could so easily move three towns over. That was not the case here. The skin that they had in the game helps us to understand why Paul says, you, you're turning, you're turning from these idols was in the context of great affliction. So let's look at what it means to turn from idols and to God. It's not enough that we simply give up one activity but we must turn and so hold on to another. I want you to consider some of these passages on turning in rooting ourselves. Okay, I found my identity is so wrapped up in being defined according to blank. But my repentance, I need to not hate that, but I need to let go of that, that I might have two hands to hold on to Christ. What does his word say about my identity? Each time you hear in Christ, hear identity. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. 
from the law of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I have 90 more examples, but I will not exhaust them all. Scripture continues to say that if you are in Christ, you have that connection. If He says, I abide in you and you in me. Stemming from that relationship, I then have my marching orders. I am to, okay, in order to fulfill that identity, here is my, I am a Christian first. I am a husband before I'm a worker. I am a father before I'm a friend, right? So disordered worship is whenever I have those out of order and I am doing the lesser, the desires, running around with the boys, instead of the greater, which is fulfilling my commands to be a faithful husband and father. You see the disorderedness there? I hope so. Whenever I am in Christ, he is the one that gives the marching orders. Or for our safety, that Christ is my protector. You hear this throughout scripture, Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And where do we hear that reverberated in the New Testament? In Hebrews 13, he says, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Second Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In Then he concludes that, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Is that not a better self-protection plan? That though I'm crushed, God is at work that I'm not driven to despair because whatever it was that I risk, God can use that to grow my faith in him. So it's not a matter of A or B. Which one are you going to choose? Well, this is just two idolaters, two ideologies competing. There's a third option. I will trust in the Lord. And it's not that I say, oh, so forget both of those because I may have to choose one or the other. But whenever I trust in the Lord, I take it from a great fear, something that I've really placed my value in, and I let go that I might serve the greater over the lesser. So we trust him for our health, for our care, for our health care, for the aging process, for the ails of life. God is my rescue. He's also our freedom. Christ has become our redeemer. In Acts 13, 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Hebrews 2, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who for all of their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. In John 8, 31, 2, and 6, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It doesn't come from running loose in the society. Your freedom comes from the knowledge that none of this is your authority. None of these hold ultimate sway over you. They may be light and momentary inconveniences, but the one who rules me, the one who tells me where to go and how to act is above City Hall. And whenever they conflict, my freedom is not found outside of punishment. My freedom is found in a free conscience that is able to serve God and to love him. Though we may feel trapped at times, that's our indicator. I feel trapped. And we realize that it is God pulling our hands loose of what we wanted. I wanted that because it was my freedom. I wanted that because it said a lot about me. And that, those were the things that I wanted to be true about me. Or those were the things that were finally going to put an end to this. And God says, no. Not because he wants you to lose grip and fall, but because he wants you to let go of one to hold on to another. And by repenting, the Thessalonians were an open repudiation to their culture. And they were joyful in it, too. Imagine that. Imagine that. And as we close, verse 10, he says, you, To serve God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The waiting is a theme throughout the Thessalonian letters. They were legendary for their waiting. Uh, to the point where they actually had to be rebuked to come back to activeness. But Paul here is encouraging them, uh, affirming for them what they are waiting for. And because we deal with this several times throughout the letter, I'm not going to go extensively into this. But I will say that as Paul says the wrath to come, that is end times. That is not the wrath to come as in like that mob, th them locals going to get you. It's not that. It's, it's beyond. The suffering that Paul's concerned with is that you would avoid the suffering that comes from God, but take the suffering that comes from the idolaters. They will punish you for your disobedience. Take that. Take it. Not the wrath to come that would punish us for the disobedience to the greater, to Christ, to that first command. So I... I hope that there's some encouragement in this that I would be able to really sit and wrestle with what is it about me, my heart? Because not everybody idolizes this. So what is it about me that I hold on to that and I am extracting from this idol? And I hope that these questions would encourage you to do that. What do I sin to get? Sin whenever I don't get or sin when I have? 
what causes me to be angry? The last activity that I wanted, but I was denied getting, and I became angry. Oh, I'm sorry, I won't use examples because these are a little too up in our business. How about my robust defense of my idol? I know that because that defense is full of eye rolling, huffing, and the formidable puffing. And if you step in between me, and you see it in your own life, you're, you're focused on something and somebody comes in to interrupt you and you're like, you give them that look like, get out of the way between me and... And you turn your back to them. Will you please leave me alone with my... And you want to communicate, leave me alone with this. Don't tend to the greater matter, which is your love and your relationship, maybe even your leadership of this, and turn to the lesser, which is your own desires. That's what I meant by the, the dopamine hit, that little, little spark of excitement as you scroll. That's actually built into the idea of addicting you to these technologies. So I could keep going, but... I, I hope that these hit hard because I had to go through it. I, I didn't bring examples from your lives. Bring examples from my own. And it's tough to look at whenever you've been raging and then all of a sudden God says, that's you, you're the man. And you just sit there in silence and say, it's good that I turn from this idol. Amen. I may not feel it. I may not see it right now. But if I trust God and let that go, do I trust that what I then am holding on to is God? Lord, we thank you for your word and what we get just in a few words that the Thessalonians turned from idols to God. Lord, how remarkable that is. We wrestle and struggle every day. Lord, to know that we are placed in a long line of saints, those who've overcome these lusts of the world, lusts of the flesh, they've overcome these before. It's not impossible for us. We're not trapped in this. We have a rescuer. We have a redeemer. We have Christ. Lord, may we better understand the things that entangle us here on the world, that we might be free of them, that we might so hold on to and so believe your word that it is transformational. Lord, that we would live differently. That we not wrap ourselves around the, the things of this world that are fading but wrap ourselves around it so much that we would fight one another, that we would bite one another, destroy one another, and so leave our hearts wide open to the enemy. Lord, sanctify us. Purify us. After having convicted us, Lord, you will not leave us alone. Be pleased with how we respond to your word. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.